we're recording and now I have to put my I have to lower my voice so that people take me seriously. It's fucking scream. I mean, okay. <laughs> we can fix it in post. You can fix my voice in post. Welcome to Slashers Prefer Blondes, a podcast where three brunettes talk the kinds of movies that bite, scream, and slash. I'm Natalie. I'm Heidi. And I'm Laura. And today we're grabbing our skateboards and stalking the streets of Bad City to examine Anna Lily Amirpour's 2014 film, A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. This week, we're doing a film that was picked by yours truly. When I was choosing movies for a movie for this episode, I wanted to pick something that was different than my last two picks, which I've been saying every time. But if we're being really honest, the last two movies that I've picked were maybe not really indicative of like a seasoned taste level. (laughs) 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 And I like well-crafted, artistically significant, you know, bougie films too. So I <laughs> Nat- Natalie, you don't have to um, apologize for your other picks. They were all very good. I mean, you listen to the Slither episode. I spend the entire episode talking about how amazing I think that movie is and how well-crafted I think that movie is. But I did want to pick something that was a little more art housey, a little more different. So I went with A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, which I think still fits pretty solely in the kind of genre films that I enjoy. There's a lot of stuff in this movie that I really, really like. I do want to say thank you to everybody who's been listening to our podcast so far. We started posting episodes about a month ago now, and we're getting some really great feedback and some really awesome comments and reactions, and it means a lot to me that everybody is enjoying it so much. This is our first episode that we're recording since we started posting episodes, so hopefully everybody is continuing to like what we're putting out. If you guys have suggestions for movies you want to see or suggestions for things you would like to see from us in the future please, please, please do not hesitate to reach out to us on Instagram at Sasha's Prefer Blondes Podcast because we're having such a fun time doing this and we want to keep doing it. We want to keep doing stuff that people are going to like. So definitely, definitely hit us up or give us a follow, share our podcast, leave a comment, follow us, subscribe, because like all of that stuff will just help us grow and help us like kind of make a little, a little Slasher's Prefer Blondes family. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. That's what I think would be really fun is if like we had a little group of people. We could like just talk about movies together because like that's literally all I wanted out of this podcast anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Like our little corner of the internet. Precisely. Non-toxic. Anyway. Yeah. One of the things that I also wanted to add is just, you know, if you are listening and you have thoughts about the film as well, whether you've seen it or not, feel free to share with us. We want to hear what you have to say and we want to yeah. know if you agree with what we say, if you disagree, if you have a different perspective. I mean, obviously... We all view films and read them in different ways. So the other thing we want to do is just create a conversation around the different films that we watch. And so our listeners are integral to doing that. So never feel uh, hesitant to do that. Yeah. And especially I think for this film too, we're, I don't know how to word this properly. We are three, (laughs) we are three white women from America and 
though we do have differing perspectives and there are like certain aspects of this film that we can identify with, we're not the target audience for this film at first glance. Like this is an Iranian film. It is made primarily, I would assume, for Iranian audiences. And there's a lot of stuff in this movie that's just going to go over our heads, like full stop. Um, <laughs> right. We did a little bit of research to try to counteract some of that. And then we're going to talk a little bit about like transnationalism and like Iranian cinema and like what this movie has to say about Western culture. But at the end of the day, like we don't know more than anyone else <laughs> um, uh, by any means. <laughs> yeah. So like our kind of collective disclaimer is we are providing Western perspectives and interpretations yeah. of this film. So we're kind of acknowledging our limitation there. Mm hmm. And if you have, like, another perspective or, like, maybe you're Iranian and want to let us know things that we might have missed, we would love to hear that. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And, like, this movie is a really important piece of horror cinema from the last decade. It's made a really big impact in general in terms of vampire movies and, like, horror movies and, like, what we expect from movies that have female protagonists even. So, like... Mm -hmm. I just want to talk about it because I really love this movie and it really like hit me really hard when I first saw it. And it's definitely one of my favorites that I have ever seen. So um, <laughs> that's why I wanted to talk about it today. This struck me, I have to say, as a very Natalie film. I mean, the vibe, the aesthetic, the music, the shot composition, just everything about it. I was like, yeah, this is, this is a Natalie film. This makes yeah. total sense why she chose it. What I think is really funny is that I completely agree with you. I think that this movie just vibes with me like real, real hard. But what is like shocking to me every time I watch it is that I love it so much and there's so little dialogue because mm -hmm. I'm usually I'm usually such a dialogue person. I love yeah. conversations like I love hearing people talk. Um, so like <laughs> the fact that this movie is so sparse with the dialogue, which is actually yes. I learned in some of my research, a hallmark of Iranian New Wave films. Interesting. Oh, cool. It lends itself to this kind of like impressionistic sort yeah. of personality to That's it which i really yeah. really love i just like i love the feeling i get when i watch this movie the first time that i watched this movie was actually with you i think we had picked it for our first halloween marathon yeah and i hadn't watched it again since then and those last two times that i watched it i did notice that i liked it less than i did the first time i think That's in part weird. because there's not a lot of dialogue and like the first time you watch it it's just such a vibe and you're just really entranced in the story. Mm -hmm. But the second time I was like, oh, I, I kind of know what I'm getting into. And so like, obviously there are a couple of scenes that I was very excited to watch again. Yeah. The disco ball scene, obviously. Of course. But other than that, I was like, okay, I get this movie, I guess. So I don't know. Yeah. I actually, I actually kind of had the opposite reaction. Like I, I remember watching it the first time, but I don't remember really how I felt about it. So when I watched it for this podcast episode, I noticed how little dialogue there was. And I actually loved, I wrote in my notes, like they say so much without saying anything. Mm -hmm. The way that they emote is so, it really is effective to me. And the more I watched it, the more I kind of appreciated how they don't have to say a lot to, to say something. Yeah. So like, I see the perspective of, being a little bored with it because you know what's going to happen and there's not a lot of dialogue to keep you alert. But I did appreciate how much can be said without having a dialogue heavy yeah. film. Yeah. And I will say, even though I didn't have as great of a time watching it these last couple of times as I did the first time, it 
always impresses me with how well crafted this film is like the Mm -hmm. editing is amazing the shot composition is amazing the way that they use music is so good like every piece of this film is so well done that you just Mm -hmm. can't you can't help but like sit there and be like wow this is like cinema like I'm watching art right now interestingly enough like for me Normally when I watch movies, I start out taking really, really, really thorough notes and then just kind of like lose interest in either the movie or like Mm -hmm. taking the notes halfway through. And like this happened for me this time, but instead of it being because I, because I have a tendency when I'm watching horror movies to like, once you get to that third act, to not really care as much. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? Mm -hmm. I think that usually for horror movies, I'm more invested in that first and second act. It's very, very rare that a horror movie will keep me till the very, very end as incredibly like attached and enthused mm-hmm. third acts and horror movies are really hit or miss though so yeah like, I get like that's it. it's the hardest part it, yeah. it just it just fully is if you can bring it home that's a good film yeah mm-hmm. yeah but like for me watching this one i just get more invested as time goes on i think that in the beginning i'm more like i don't really know but then like once that middle chunk hits i am just like so attached and so invested to these characters and it's like so like ready to see it through to the end that like i stopped taking notes but um (laughs) i did it because i was like just so thoroughly invested in watching the movie you know what i mean i was just like i want to keep watching this i don't want to be looking at my computer screen right now Mm -hmm. so that was a different experience for me like we we watched the Mm -hmm. lighthouse i fully fell asleep the first and second time (laughs) i watched it (laughs) That movie's like really long though, so I It's get really it. long and it's a lot. It's um and I at that film. point at that point I'd seen it three times. So I was like, yeah. I'm tired. <laughs> so Natalie, did you wanna give some yes. are you gonna give some facts? Okay, so A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night came out in twenty fourteen. Um it premiered at Sundance in twenty fourteen. It was part of the next fest too. Yes, it was. Which yeah. is like the more experimental side of mm-hmm. Sundance, which is really cool, and this part fits perfectly. Yeah. In that. Mm-hmm. It was actually filmed in California, so mm-hmm. that's cool. And it was filmed in black and white. It made six hundred and twenty-eight thousand dollars, which is not that bad for a low-budget foreign movie <laughs> how long was its theatrical release do you know because i don't recall seeing this in theaters yeah i don't have it up i don't remember but also 2014 uh i was like what like 21 sophomore sophomore yeah. college what else came out in 2014 oh it follows came out in 2014 i was gonna say that but i was oh hesitant. that's right and- oh so did spring I I didn't really love Spring though. I I liked it. I know you liked it, but you also like that one's also like more romancy. Yeah. <laughs> this is a, this there's a trend here. Not like this movie. <laughs> Not at all. I only like romance movies when they're really fucked up. <laughs> that's fair. But I do distinctly remember It Follows going to theaters because that's how I watched it the first time, but yes. I don't I had never heard of this movie for the longest time. Yeah, but, like, sometimes horror, like, foreign films are kind of hard to find in theaters. Especially for me. I live in Indiana, so, like... Yeah. You have the Keystone Art Cinema, basically. Yeah, basically. Like, I to go see Titan, I have to, like, go to another city. I'm like... (laughs) Oh, that's, like, playing down the block. One really cool thing about this movie is that it does definitely pay homage to a lot of different genres and themes and stuff that you normally see in cinema both in iran and in the united states 
I know that when she was filming this movie, the director had her cast watch Nosferatu and then a bunch of spaghetti westerns. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is Makes self. Sense. It is like self-built as a yeah. Iranian vampire western. Mm-hmm. The first one, the first Iranian yeah. vampire western. And the style of it is really evocative. It's like really graphic and especially because it's like so high contrast black and white. So it's really evocative of graphic novel, which is interesting because like Mm -hmm. six graphic novels were released based off of the movie. So I think she said that she particularly took influence from Frank Miller, the guy who did Sin City. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes complete sense. Yeah. But yeah, I think the cinematography and the way that lighting and shot composition in general is used in this movie is one of the things that I like about it the most. Like, I think that it is just like a visually perfect film. Mm hmm. I am obsessed with it in like every way. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's all I had to say about the production. Um, is there anything else you guys wanted to talk about? Re like your experiences with this movie? Like how you like anything like that? I actually, before we get into the actual summary, I kind of wanted to talk about the title of the film itself. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Let's talk about it. Just because I think it's, there's a lot of significance to it. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, that already sets up a very horrific scenario that's laden with the potential threat of gendered violence. Like, if you hear that, it's kind of like, oh, oh shit, something bad's going to happen. So in that sense, it kind of plays off of the pre-existing assumptions of, like, women's vulnerability at night or in the dark. Mm-hmm. It's almost like to exist as a woman at night is to be in danger, especially yeah. if you're alone. So it really plays off of that. And the other thought I had in relation to that is that it calls to mind this kind of liminal space between areas of relative safety. And I say relative because violence can occur anywhere in public or in private. Mm-hmm. But it's kind of like when you're in that space between point A and point B, going from one destination to another, there's like a heightened awareness of like the fact that you're in an exposed state. Mm-hmm. So I like that the title kind of primes you to be thinking about mm-hmm. all of those things, but then it flips it on its head completely. Yeah. And then the girl becomes the threat or the source of danger. So I, yeah. I really like the title because of that. This film is like really subversive of expectations. Mm-hmm. I think that's like a really perfect way to describe it. Yeah. I definitely think that they are spending a lot of time both playing in like the gray areas, like morally gray areas mm-hmm. specifically, because there is so much good and bad mixed up together in this fictional bad city, quote unquote. And I think that the title alone really does work to evoke that. Like it is interesting because there's like a lot of true meaning to it. Because mm-hmm. in one way is like, you can think about it in the sense that like, hey, when you're normally thinking about a girl walking home alone at night, like she's in risk of being in danger. And yeah. obviously this girl is not in danger. She is the danger. Um, yeah. <laughs> but the danger. Yeah. It's also interesting to me because like a girl walks home alone at night. Like I think one of the more interesting facets of the girl as a character in this movie is her loneliness. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I will talk about that more, obviously, because I think especially the scene that she has with Ati really puts that front and center like it's Mm -hmm. like the focus of that conversation that they have which is like one of my favorite parts of the entire film there's so much said in that conversation and so little is said Mm -hmm. in that conversation yeah (laughs) but it really gives us some insight into the fact that she is just like alone and like looking for something to care about Mm -hmm. and it's just like it's a perfect title it's a perfect title 
for a perfect movie. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I think we should get into the summary because I we're gonna have a lot to talk about. So we gotta let's we gotta yeah. get going. Yeah. Okay. I'm gonna try really hard to say all these names correctly. We're here with you. Be if you if be you gentle. Know, if you are like Iranian and know how to say these names and we're like fucking butchering them, I'm so fucking sorry. Yeah. We are just here to try to respect this movie and <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> And yeah. I'm sorry if we if we fall short, but like just let us know. We're trying if our we're best. We're saying something wrong, but do it nicely. Yeah, be gentle. I'm, <laughs> I'm fragile. We are here to learn, to listen and learn, and also to give our our perspective. Yeah. All right. Are we ready? Uh huh. Yes. Arash, a hardworking Iranian man, styled an awful lot like James Dean, stands outside a decrepit building, smoking a cigarette before he climbs inside and emerges again with a large and very beautiful cat named Mr. Cat. Okay, number one. Arash is so cute. <laughs> giggle, giggle, giggle. Like, he is, like, so fine. Like, hello, sir. Okay, that cat is huge, though. I love, I'm obsessed with this cat. I love this okay, cat. Okay, so where is he getting it from, though? It's from inside the house. He just, like, goes in there. And it's just, just a random house. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I think that the fact that the first scene we have with Arash is him getting an animal and like being with an animal, it automatically endures us to him. So like, well, I that's, think that's the, really smart. Yeah, that's the point. Yeah, I, yeah it, it happens in all the movies. Like yeah. if someone's nice to an animal, you obviously like them more. Yeah. <laughs> I love that he just like carries it around with him too. Yeah. yeah. This cat is such a good little actor. Yeah. Yeah. And he's definitely evoking the James Dean rebel without a cause definitely. image there. I googled the plot of Rebel Without a Cause. Oh, you haven't seen because, it? I haven't Yeah, either. I've never seen it. I'm sorry if that's, like, bad. Because I want to see it. This is a podcast about horror movies. I know. But not like, about Steam films. I want to see it. I, wa- I love <laughs> Natalie Wood. I love <laughs> Natalie Wood is also really cute. Like, I like, love yeah, Natalie that's Wood. True. But I, I've never seen Rebel Without a Cause, so I looked it up. And after I looked it up, it's actually also in the article that I brought to talk about today. And it, like, mentions it a little bit and, like, what his looking like Rebel Out of Cause, James Dean, like, means. But mm-hmm. I think one of the most interesting things that I took from my own research into Rebel Without a Cause is that one of the main themes of Rebel Without a Cause is masculinity. Yeah. Because he mm-hmm. is dissatisfied with the way that his father is in his relationship with his mom. He thinks that he's not, like, being a man and, like, taking charge in the relationship. That and tracks. not only does that fucking fall exactly into line sort of with what's happening with arash's dad in this film but also like masculinity is a hundred percent like five million percent a theme in this movie Mm -hmm. yeah like subverting masculinity what patriarchy does to men and like how masculinity impacts like perceptions of masculinity like impact the way that people interact with each other yeah it does bring up a question though for me like when does this movie take place Oh, it full on has that it follows timelessness quality to yeah. it. Yeah. Rip to our it follows episode that got eaten by our computers. But <laughs> yeah. If we ever do a Patreon, we'll do an it follows episode. We'll resurrect it. Yes. We'll try really hard. Rip to my color theory too. My whole <laughs> rant about color lost. Oh. This episode is not about it follows. It's not. But it has the same it has the same kind of vibe to it where like there's not really a set place like i was actually watching this with all my roommates and he was like what what time period is this set in and i was like Mm -hmm. what what an excellent question Mm -hmm. (laughs) i wish i knew 
it is a modern film, <laughs> mm-hmm. but we don't know what yeah. exactly it's set. Um, okay, I'm gonna move on. Yeah. So as Arash walks around, we get an introduction to Bad City, an Iranian oil town that never quite had its boom and has certainly seen better days. Before he gets to his classic vintage car, he passes by an open grave where there are bodies just piled up in a large ditch that Arash seemingly pays no mind to. My favorite part about this moment is that this upbeat French sounding music that is playing just like distorts as he walks past. I was like, yes. oh, that's a good touch. Yeah. The music in this movie. The music in this movie is so good. This soundtrack yeah. is unironically something that I just listen to. <laughs> <laughs> I love the music in this movie. It's so good. And, it, and all of it serves like a purpose. All of it. It's all so perfect. Even like the cringier scenes. Like when the drug dealer who looks like Matthew McConaughey with the <laughs> yeah. tattoos. Yeah. When the he's one that says like, sex. When, he, his yeah, throat. when he's like undulating to that techno oh music. I'm like, you know what? This kind of slaps though. It kind of goes off a little bit. The song is good. Yeah. I was jamming to it today. I love it. I love it. Okay. Sorry. All right. Back to the summary. When Arash arrives at home, his father, Hossein, a heroin addict, shoots up before Saeed the local pimp and drug dealer of Bad City, arrives to collect the money the man owes him. Okay, while Hossein is shooting up the heroin... Wow, that was really casual. (laughs) (laughs) There is a person on the TV, right? Yes. And that guy on the TV is... uh, This is me summarizing what he says. This is not... I'm paraphrasing. This is not exactly what he says. He's like, dearest ladies with families, you care for your family, but your husband is the one who brings some of the money. Like... Isn't that great for you? But, like, think about what would happen if that were to change and he were, like, to leave you or to die. Like, how would you support yourself? (laughs) Oh, jeez. Like, that's what this guy is saying on the TV, which is interesting that we're, like, automatically just starting off with a focus of a man speaking directly to a female audience about, like, them not having independence. Like, I don't know exactly what to make of it, but Mm -hmm. I do think that it's interesting. You know what I mean? Well, it's doubly interesting because it's this middle-aged man who's sitting at home watching this. He's yeah. clearly not providing for his family because he's too high all the time. And then also, you know, he owes a lot of money to this guy. Oh, so mm-hmm. much. So much money. And by he, yeah. it's Arash, really, because he has no means to pay to pay him back. Yeah. Well, Hossein owes the money. Arash Right. Is, but, yeah. you know, we get right away that Arash is the one who's trying to settle the debts because... Absolutely. And that's causing yeah. a lot of tension between him and Hossein because he knows mm-hmm. that his dad yeah. just doesn't have the means to pay. And I do mm-hmm. like... I thought that line was interesting where um, Saeed is saying something about your dad's very normal. You know, he likes to gamble. He likes women. He likes drugs. But the fact is that, and I'm not saying that that is normal, but, you know, in the context of the film, he's trying to like normalize his behavior and say like, the problem is he just can't pay for it. Yeah. And that's Mm -hmm. why the responsibility falls on Arash. Yeah. Yeah. Which, which are all also things that we typically identify with like, being with women and like gambling is very like masculine no 100 percent. yeah i definitely think that the fact that he was like hey your dad is a normal guy like that is kind of reinforcing this constructed idea of masculinity yeah and obviously like there are probably differences to like gendered norms across Mm -hmm. the oceans but i think that a lot of them are pretty standardized in terms of like you know it's a patriarchal society 
the idea that he would be interested in things like gambling and women and blah 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 mm-hmm. is like normal dude stuff and i also think that it's interesting that in that scene we are kind of immediately given a very quick rundown of like both arash's place in society and his place within his family and yes. within that conversation like arash is a man who like wants to be a man of action and like wants to do things and like get things done but mm-hmm. like isn't he isn't really able to make things go in his favor or like impact the lives of those around him you know like with his dad because of his situation you know what i mean like right. he is poor he is yeah he's not traditionally masculine in the sense that like he's not like a normal guy like his father Mm -hmm. and he's definitely not like yeah so he's kind of like forced into a position where he's having to be responsible for his father's actions and it's so frustrating to him that he lashes out in a very masculine way Mm -hmm. and punches that fucking wall Mm -hmm. (laughs) and is immediately punished for it because he breaks his hand yeah (laughs) right it makes the effort that he puts into looking like James Dean and having this like classically cool man's car feel very performative. Mm-hmm. Like this is what society or I guess specifically Western culture says is what men are like and like what makes a cool man and like a desirable man. And so I'm going to like emulate that. Yeah. And the, and the car itself is a status symbol. And, you know, mm-hmm. I do yeah. like at the beginning where they make that pretty clear where the little boy says, do you have any money? And he says, no, mm-hmm. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm strapped for cash. And he's like, well, how'd you yeah. get that car? And he's like, do you yeah. know how many days I've worked? It's like 2,191 or something like that. It's like, yeah, it's over 2,000. Yeah. You know, and so he has kept track of how long it's taken him to earn enough money to buy that yeah. status symbol. And he treasures it so much because of that. Yeah. yeah. And it's immediately taken from him, which is like oh, another yeah. form of masculinity. The next morning, Arash once again begins the grind to try to get his car back, groundskeeping for a family, and specifically for a young woman named Shada. She calls him in to fix something in her bedroom, and he convinces her that it is immodest for her to be alone in her room with him, and when she leaves, he steals a pair of her expensive earrings. What do you guys make of this character? (laughs) I don't know. Shada? Yeah. Yeah. Something that I think is interesting about her, though that we see throughout the rest of the film is she never wears any kinds of like no hijab and no chador yeah yeah Mm -hmm. she doesn't wear any of that she likes to party she dances with men and that's all illegal yeah she's definitely like a more secular yeah and she like makes fun of arash for being like you know if your parents found out that you were yeah, if your if your parents found out that you were here with me, like what would they say? And she was like, "Oh, it makes my knees weak." Yeah, Ugh. and yeah. she does not go for that. I also think that it's significant that she had a nose job. Yes, um, I think that like it's emulating Western mm-hmm. culture, mm-hmm. and I think that the fact that she is like an emulation of Western culture is also incredibly callous. Mm-hmm. I think that the scene with her later at the party kind of shows that she's like. She doesn't really like super care about the people around her. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So like it kind of portrays her as being a little shallow. But I think it's interesting that this character's in here. I think that we have three men basically and like three women basically in this film. And they all represent really different kinds of men and women. And I think that's interesting because like we're not talking about a really strict gender binary. We're not talking about like universality in terms of gender norms like this isn't like men and women it's like 
masculinity and femininity and all of that stuff that comes in between which is why i think it's really interesting that rockabilly is one of those characters that kind of functions as a sort of like unspoken chorus in this movie mm-hmm. like you yeah. kind of see him at the corners of the screen and like he is the person we come to in the center of the film after arash and the girl have their moment mm-hmm. it's kind mm-hmm. of like an interlude of us like coming back to rockabilly which i think is like really interesting because the film i don't think is making any like grand statement about specifically like feminism as much as it's talking Mm -hmm. about how gender is in itself such a fluid and mutable concept and that what masculinity and femininity mean are only something that matters in a cultural context yeah because i mean you learn gender norms Mm -hmm. from the culture around you yeah Mm -hmm. exactly that was a good point thank you (laughs) You also might, we might want to specify who Rockabilly is because I oh. did not know what Rockabilly was. I'm sorry. Rockabilly is the gay man in drag in the film. You see him in the beginning. Um, You see him at the party. You see him at the middle of the film. And then you don't really see him again. He and never really says anything. Again. He's just, he's just around. Yeah. It's cool. Yeah. And the director is the one that said it was a gay man in drag and it's not a trans yeah. woman. Just to clear that up. Because I didn't know that. I read that in an article mm-hmm. I read about yeah. this movie. So, <laughs> Yeah, and Rockabilly's never named. That's just... That's why I was like, who what? is that when you first yeah, the, mentioned him? Just yeah. what she calls him. It is like significant also like while we're talking about Rockabilly as a character that right off the fucking bat, like in the beginning of this film, we see this presence of this like obviously queer man on screen. Yeah. And how that is like a really, really huge deal in mm-hmm. a film that is iranian because it's just so not okay to be gay in iran um (laughs) yeah and i think it also says something about like shada being representative of more western person because at that party she's like embracing him gives him like a kiss on the cheek Mm -hmm. and is very welcoming to him yeah it's like a counterculture thing kind Mm -hmm. of yeah we discussed off mic about how this film really represents otherness it's like a film comprised of outsiders yeah and I think the fact that we're entering like a place where everyone is an outsider, but there's still like a very strong sense of community is really significant. Yeah. And actually to bring it back to where we are in the summary, we were talking about Shada and maybe what she represents and why she's nice. in the film. <laughs> I, I, I've been sitting on this thought. Um, I was just being polite and waiting for my opportune moment. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, not to say you're being impolite. So yeah, I guess I kind of saw her as just a contrast in wealth and status to what we have been seeing in the beginning of the film. So we go from, we cut from Arash's house, which we really only see a room of it. And it's, Mm -hmm. you know, it's not very fancy or anything. It looks like pretty simple, pretty simple setup. But then we cut to Arash working at this mansion. And obviously, it's kind of like, I don't want to say he doesn't belong there, but it's kind of a stark contrast to where we've seen him before. Yeah. So to me, Shada just kind of represented someone who hasn't experienced as much of the economic hardships as Arash, mm-hmm. maybe is in a totally different situation. And really just to me seemed to serve as a contrast yeah. in that way. Yeah, for sure. I, I totally get that too. Oh, the other thing that I did want to say actually is I noticed within, I don't know what time mark we're at at this point in the film, but there's so much stealing going on. Like yeah. first shot, Arash steals the cat from wherever. Mm-hmm. I don't know. 
Then we get, you know, Saeed, who is stealing Arash's car. Then we get yeah. Arash stealing Shada's earrings. And I don't know if this is just coming up, but then Saeed steals money from Ati, basically. Oh yeah, I was about to say that. Okay, yeah, he doesn't give her her cut. So I'm just like, so much stealing going on, and that's, you know, it's bad city, so Mm -hmm. makes sense, I guess. Isn't it funny that I always just, like, assumed that he was, like, saving the cat? Like, I didn't think he was stealing the cat! I also thought he was saving the cat. I didn't think he was stealing it. I assumed he was just like, hey... My I literally, now. my first note is, well, my first note is about how cute he is. But then my second <laughs> note is, when we first meet Arash, she is saving a cat. <laughs> that is interesting. That is interesting. I guess I read it as stealing because, I mean, we don't see, I guess we don't see what's happening to the cat. Yeah. No. Like, what would he, he be just saying? like He just walks in there and, like, picks it up and walks back out. But the house definitely looks like it doesn't exist anymore like it's cracked it's exposed and you it looks like rubble mm-hmm. in some places so you think it was I just a stray cat i don't know it looks I too nice to be a stray i kind cat, of assumed though. that it was like his dad's cat and he was just like getting it oh i didn't assume that oh no i, I don't i, I, I don't it, know so it, i assume stealing because it looked like someone's house and he was like kind of sneaking through the back but now that I think about that, it doesn't really jive with his character. I don't feel like he'd just steal something to steal something. So maybe yeah. maybe he was saving it for something. I don't know. I don't know. It looked what, like a house to me. Listeners, what do you think? What was he doing with the cat? <laughs> Where'd he get this cat? That's why my question was, my first question literally was, where is he getting the cat from? <laughs> so who knows? But yeah, other than that, even if that's saving, yeah. we get these other instances of stealing. So it's kind of like a cutthroat. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, no, I didn't even notice that. That's like an interesting. I didn't either. That's an interesting uh, motif. Yeah, yeah. Because I think that one of the really interesting themes of the film is doing what you have to do to survive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like that that. idea of doing something that you don't necessarily want to do, but like you have to do to make it through the next day. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So like Arash taking care of his father, even though like he, it's like an obligation. Mm -hmm. The vampire. The girl in that conversation with Ati, we like hear her basically like say that I identify with you doing something that you don't want to do because you feel like you have mm-hmm. to do it. Yeah, She's like, I feel that way about killing people. Mm-hmm. I was kind of wondering how all of the shots of the oil rigs play into it. And I'm yeah, wondering if I it's like question too. maybe kind of referencing scarcity of resources or competition over resources or maybe... I don't know, exploitation of the land, which kind of relates to how people are disposable in this town. I don't really know. So I was just kind of throwing that that. out there. How oil is also, oil is such an important export to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's so politically, it's so politically charged that I'm like, Mm -hmm. I'm not exactly sure how to read this, but yeah. It looms. It's very important for those establishing shots. She keeps going back to those. And they meet by the plant. Yeah, mm-hmm. the power when plant. When they go on yeah. their little date. Uh-huh. You yeah. can hear the ambient noise behind them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a good setup. Yeah. Anyway, back to the summary. That night, Saeed sits with Ati in Arash's car to split her earnings, or rather not split them at all with her. When he's like, see my car. I literally wrote in my notes, see my car? Ugh. <laughs> 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 I was like, I it fucking is, hate this guy. so gross though yeah i know i'm like could you shut up you just stole this car you dick like <laughs> mm-hmm, yeah see my car yeah he asks if ati wants kids and even though she doesn't answer she seems to get what's happening here and goes down on him hoping that he'll pay her if she does and out of the back window of the car we see a mysterious figure dressed in a black 
Chador. When Saeed sees this person behind them, he understandably freaks out and kicks Ati out of the car without paying her and drives off in a hurry. The figure is nowhere to be found until a young woman, the girl, walks out of a grocery store and then on her way home. Interesting fact that I learned reading a couple articles. Somebody translated what that poster says. Oh, yeah? It's like a woman in... I think it's a it's another chador but the face is all blacked out yeah and the text says is this you please call this phone number and i was like what does that even mean i don't know i didn't notice this the first time that i watched the film but the second time i definitely picked up on that film and it reminded me of like a wanted poster mm-hmm. and it made me start thinking like how long has she been doing this mm-hmm. and like are people looking for her In the Mm. supplementary materials, she has been a vampire since, like, the 1800s. Wait, where did you learn that? It was in the article I read. It's apparently, like, in either, like, some interview with the director on, like, the Blu-ray or something, or, like, in the graphic novels. Yeah. Because I had also seen articles, like, reference that, and I was like, I don't think I would have missed that in the film. Yeah, no, there's a lot of lore behind this because it also has, like, a novelization. Oh, that's okay. true. It does have the graphic novels. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we should probably just for a second talk about the Chowder. Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, once again, we are all white Americans. But um, <laughs> I, yeah. The Chowder is a piece of clothing worn by women in Iran. And it's usually sort of like a modesty piece. Yeah. You cover your entire body. With it's like an chatter. outer piece to wear over your clothes. And if mm-hmm. you don't wear it or a hijab, it's illegal. What's interesting about the chador, which is something that the article... Throughout this episode, I'm going to be referencing this article, The Transnational Gaze and the Girl Walks Home Alone at Night by Lindsay Decker. It is in the essay collection, A Women Make Horror, Filmmaking, Feminism, and Genre, which I just bought on a whim. And it just ha- so happened to have an article about this movie in it which was awesome so uh <laughs> i'll put i'll put the title of that in the episode summary yeah. too for yeah that would be reference. that would be so lit yeah so there was a little part in this article where the author talks about the chador okay here here's the quote you ready yes the chador is a more traditional covering popular in iran it covers the hair as mandated by modesty laws but also the majority of the body down to the ankles the chador is open in the front and must be actively held closed by the wearer making it a limiting garment. The girl uses it as a vampire's cape, and it cloaks her in the illusion of compliance. Interesting. Isn't that lit? It does. And the first time you do see her, like, standing there, like, watching them in the car, it made me think of Batman. Oh, that's funny. (laughs) I was like, Batman. (laughs) And I think there is an interview with the director where she talks about, like, how this whole film was inspired by her Mm -hmm. wearing that, and how she was like, oh, this is kind of like, it could be kind of like badass. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What I think is cool about it is that she very rarely wears it like the traditional way where she holds it closed. She usually just like has yes. it open. Yeah. And it like flows behind yeah, her. Yeah, which is like really, really cool. And I know like there's a lot of talk about how like the film is like a feminist statement because like she's wearing a chador and she's killing people. She's like killing men. Um, <laughs> And like I think that's all well and good, but I do think that that is kind of like a limiting Western approach to it because... Mm-hmm. I do think that there's a lot more nuance to her wearing the chador than just like it being like, oh, this is a bad thing that we're subverting. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, that's not mm-hmm. really, I, th- I don't really think that's the point. Um, <laughs> yeah. 
I think it's more so like it's interesting that she is existing within this like patriarchal world and still finding ways to subvert gender even just by the way she's wearing this garment yeah just like that little Mm -hmm. bit of rebellion yeah like i think that is really really cool and i just i really really do like that phrase it cloaks her in the illusion of compliance i was like Lindsay. yeah that's that's fucking cool Lindsay. (laughs) she does kind of like walk too with her head down Uh uh-huh when she's around other people but when it's just her she's like a lot more confident so i think it helps her really blend in well, mm-hmm. that actually, that brings me to another part of this that was, like, really, really interesting. There's this whole section in this on gays. Like, G-A-Z-Y. G- <laughs> no, I don't, I got, That's I not how you spell gays. <laughs> gays. Like, G-A-Z-E. Oh, my God. Oh, okay. funny. Like, keep that in. People I, can for a second, was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> you know, G-E-Z. Um, <laughs> so... First, she talks about Western implications of gays in horror films. So she brings up the scholars that, for those of us who are a little more literate in Western horror film criticism, would be kind of familiar names. So Linda Williams, Julia Kristeva, Barbara Creed, Carol Clover, women who really built a understanding in the 70s and 80s. And I just want to clarify, by gaze, we mean how, like, how the camera positions audiences to view the subject of the film. So how yeah. we are positioned to see what is so going on. So old school Western horror psychoanalytic film theory basically says that the gaze is a male gaze through the camera. And, like, we're watching women as if we are men watching women. Yeah. And yeah. a really good example of utilizing that would also probably be Slumber Party Massacre. Oh, 100%. Or the movie Peeping Tom. It's yeah. used it's used a lot to analyze Alfred Hitchcock films. But yeah. basically the author Decker kind of says, okay, so like all of that is like not what I'm talking about. This movie is engaging in that, but not a normal way. Okay. Basically, she posits and she's utilizing the author um Hamid Nafisi's argument about Islamic gaze theory. Um, which is an alternative theorization of averted gazes specific to Iranian cinema after the 1978 through 79 Islamic Revolution. After the Islamic Revolution, just as a quick debrief on Iranian history, um, <laughs> the Islamic Revolution brought in like a conservative wave in Iran, and it basically made it so it was like really hard to show like women in film. Really, like it was thought to be immodest. So like mm-hmm. you weren't really seeing a lot of women centric stories or narratives. Um, like even more so than what we would be seeing in Western cinema. It was a much more conservative framework. Once again, I'm by no means like a scholar on <laughs> the Islamic religion. So like, <laughs> this is just the result of a little bit of research. Yes. Yeah. Um, like, yeah, I, I studied it in high school, but like that was a long time ago. So <laughs> <laughs> I've read Persepolis and that's, that's about it. Persepolis slaps. Which is great. I would read, yeah. I want to read it again. And they actually made a film about it. So. If you're interested in the history of the Iranian 1979 revolution, check out the book. It's a graphic novel called Persepolis. The film is based on the graphic novel as well. I think it's animated. So it's like really good. Yeah, it's really cool. It's really, really cool. Okay. Anyway, Lindsay Decker writes, (laughs) the theory of gender difference underlying the gaze in post-revolutionary Iranian cinema is not based on men's fear of women's lack or castration but on the idea that women are a constitutive part of the core self of the males to whom they are related, and they must therefore be protected. This leads to the Islamic gaze regime, which, Nafizi argues, 
is based on several further assumptions. First, the eyes are active, even invasive organs. Second, women possess an extraordinary sexual desire that must be contained through modesty to prevent it from corrupting men. Because third, men are weak and unable to resist women's powerful sexual allure. So, in post-revolutionary Iranian cinema, (laughs) shots are often composed and you often see like men and women not looking at each other when they talk. Interesting. Because there is like a power afforded to the female gaze that we don't usually see in Western cinema. So when the girl is walking past Saeed on the sidewalk and doesn't look at him and then does, that's actually like a huge deal. That's why he thinks that she wants to fuck him. Mm-hmm. Because like, that's not something that you would normally do. Normally you would avert your eyes because that is what's normal and that is what's modest. So like basically while, while Western psychoanalytic film theory sort of posits the female itself as being like an objectified victim of the male gaze it's more like the female gaze is the thing that has more power because like when you're invoking the female gaze in an iranian film you are affording that woman agency and control over a situation because like normally you would be looking at averted gazes interesting that plays into i mean i kind of wanted to talk about this later but definitely plays into the theme of a watchful woman or exactly that she is always watching people and judging them based on their behaviors exactly so okay two more lines from this and then i will stop in iranian cinema (laughs) women gain knowledge and power to quote equalize their situation through distanced gazing so like yeah that's that's something that's really common in this like era of films and like obviously this film didn't come out right after the, the Islamic religion. But the Iranian new wave, which happens sort of like as a response to this, is something that the director is referencing. Decker goes on to say that, like you said, Laura, like this movie privileges gazing. Like we're mm-hmm. constantly watching the girl watch others. Mm-hmm. And like her gaze is what is kind of dictating what's going to happen next in a lot of ways in the film. Yeah. And like you said, it's at a distance. It always starts at a distance. You always of course, you get the noise, like, yeah. you know, when it's, it's showing her, it's like, boom. But she's always, at first, distanced from the person, and then she kind of closes in. Yeah. And, like, the last, like, big thing that I took away from this article that I will kind of preview now so that I can stop talking about it, because I feel like I've been talking for a long time. But um, <laughs> I just really thought this article was really interesting, <laughs> is that she directly juxtaposes the scene with Saeed with when the girl meets Arash later in the film. Because with Saeed, he is automatically like put under a spell with her gaze. Like her gaze has that normal patriarchal power, right? But when she meets Arash, he has like, that doesn't affect him at all. He's high as fuck. He just treats her <laughs> like a person when she addresses him. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. And then like when they have their date together, it's a lot of the same, like them not looking at each other, like them both playing into those conventional norms because like they're both not really trying to assert dominance over the other Mm -hmm. and that means that within the construction of the film like their relationship is more based on equality and mutual understanding and mutual respect yeah yeah no that's really informative i'm glad that you read that and yeah (laughs) definitely contributes to the conversation like some of the things i was seeing align with what you were just talking about so that's that's yeah no like you fully were like so this and i was like that's exactly what she says (laughs) (laughs) yeah no i thought it was really interesting (laughs) yeah that's that's really good groundwork for reading the film so i think that was really important 
Okay, so we, I would like to apologize to the listeners because we got way, way ahead of ourselves. As per usual, we do recommend that you watch the movie for listening to the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) A Girl Walks Home Alone Tonight is available on Shudder. But we're going to jump back to the grocery store thing because I really just took us right off them rails and onto something else. So, like, I am sorry about that. So, back to Heidi's excellent summary. Yes. Oh, thanks. That was, like, the big thing that I had to get out. So, like, I got that out. Now we can use it as a framework going forward. So, like, let's just go. Okay. So, when the girl arrives in her bedroom, the room is covered in posters. And she dances and she puts on some makeup and she's real cute while she does it. I have something to say about this. I'm so sorry to interrupt again. Go for it. But the only thing I want to say is I love this scene. Even though it's so short, I love the music. The song is amazing. I love how she's like kind of getting ready for a quote unquote night out. Like she's Mm -hmm. doing kind of the normal things that someone would do before they're getting ready for a big night out. She's putting on the makeup, like you said, the song's Mm -hmm. blasting in the background. And then I like the hard cut to Saeed's face. So it's kind of like, you yeah. know, she's getting ready to be on the mm-hmm. prowl. And now this is her prey. Mm-hmm. I thought that was really well done. Yeah, I love the way that it's just like such a stark contrast to mm-hmm. how we see her outside of the grocery store. There's such a humanity and like life to her. Mm-hmm. And her dancing, like dance is such a big part of this film. Mm-hmm. Especially because like this had come out in 2014 and like i think it was before this had come out people were being arrested by the government for dancing on instagram and so i thought this was like interesting that she had chosen to like have so many people dance yeah in the film yeah that's awesome well not that they were being arrested yeah yeah oh jesus christ they were being arrested for not wearing the hijab or the Mm -hmm. chador Mm -hmm. but it's still, I think, illegal for women to dance on stage. Wow. I think mm-hmm. it's still illegal. I read a lot about dance for this. Yeah, and it's also illegal for men and women to dance together. Because it's immoral. I want to say that I also really like the scene. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's great. Yeah. You know, I love it. It's my second favorite scene of the film. I think that she's so cool. I think that, like, honestly yeah. the girl and Ross are like are they're like goals like i'm just like mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i'm just like i love both of them so much so <laughs> the girl leaves and she walks past saeed as we had mentioned and she makes eye contact with him and when he turns around she is standing there waiting for him unsurprisingly he invites her back to his house and he mostly ignores her at first doing lines of coke counting money pumping iron and then he turns oh to see her and starts to do this really weird dance. <laughs> no, this this like man gyrating. This man literally just walks in, sits down, does a couple lines of coke, and then just starts compulsively lifting weights. Exactly. Yeah. I was like, what the fuck is going on? He thinks it's <laughs> so weird. I thought maybe it was like a commentary about like how women can be like props, like in the background, how they have no purpose until you want to have sex with them. Hmm. I think that's a totally valid read of that. Maybe. I just, like, I thought it was so odd because he really just, like, doesn't pay attention. And then he's like, I'm going to seduce her with my eldest hit. Yeah, he's just, like, showing off. As Lindsay Decker posits, he is entranced by her gaze. But he ignores her. Well, I mean, once, once he looks at her. Got it. And sees her looking at him, he, like, does that dance. Mm-hmm. 
He like unbuttons his shirt. I mean, you don't even, you just look at him. You know what he wants. It says it's on his neck. Yeah. It's right there. I also like, <laughs> I'm obsessed with the way that's shot. I love that It shot. is good. Yeah. And I was going to say, so my reading of that scene is I, for one, I really like how his house is decorated. If you want to say decorated with yeah. animals and animal prints. So it's very much like giving off this predatory vibe. Like he's a predator. He walks into his house and he has that like light up aquarium and he like flicks mm-hmm. it and sends the fish like scattering. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then mm-hmm. So you have like also these symbols of power and masculinity yeah. and like the drugs and the money and he has a gun sitting there. Again, lifting weights very weirdly. <laughs> yeah. When he approaches her, he's eyeing her up and down, but she's also mm-hmm. eyeing him up and down. So it's like they're both eyeing each other for very different reasons. So in that sense, it's flipping the predator and prey dynamic. So yeah, they're framing it as though he thinks he's a predator and she's the prey. But really, we know that or I guess we don't know she's a vampire at that point in time. But we do not yet. We get but... the sense that she is the predator. Something's he up. is the prey in this instance. Yeah. Yes. yes. Like something's up. Mm-hmm. So he's dancing and he's like trying to seduce her. And then he like walks up to her and he starts doing this thing that I freaking hate. And he drags mm-hmm. his finger around her lips the same way that he did with Ati. And then she suddenly grows fangs. And after she like sucks on his finger, which is also like a whole thing that I don't like, <laughs> she bites off his finger, which is such a yes. satisfying moment. It's not as satisfying as when he freaks out and then she rubs the bloody part of the finger around his oh, mouth. Yes. And then like tries to stick it in his mouth. Oh my yes. God, yeah. And then, you know, he like scrambles backwards and she finally goes in for his neck and kills him. Pew, pew, pew. That is a pretty explicit response to what happened in the car with Ati. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I also really think that there could be I would be interested in reading a, this would be a more Western oriented read of the film as like a rape revenge mm-hmm. narrative. I saw some people talk about that. Yeah. Cause I think that, I think that you could easily make that case for it, mm-hmm. especially in the context of the way rape revenge movies are in Western horror cinema. Yeah. Cause she has that like avenging angel vibe thing. Yeah, I was about to say that. Yeah, absolutely. That's why I was getting big teeth vibes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause teeth is totally a rape revenge film. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't think that I would classify this as one of those Mm-mm. because it's it goes beyond that. But that one scene in particular definitely is making a commentary about sexual violence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very much consequential mm-hmm. of what we saw oh, in yeah. the previous scene. Yeah. It really establishes her as like a quote unquote antihero because she kills him mm-hmm. and like mm-hmm. the vigilante in town. So. Before the girl leaves, she steals all of his valuable jewelry, but runs into Arash at the gate, who is there to try to get his car back. When Arash gets into the house, he finds the dealer dead, but he searches his pockets for the car keys, and then runs off with the briefcase full of drugs and cash, and the next morning starts dealing. One thing that I think is really funny, and I didn't realize it until I watched it yesterday. This is like my fifth time watching this movie. I didn't realize until yesterday that she, like, they were fully making extended eye contact and she is, like, covered in blood. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. She <laughs> like, is, like, oh, uh... yeah, like, covered. There's blood, like, around her fucking mouth and on her shirt. <laughs> yeah. I know. And she, like, tries to cover it, but, like, does, like, a at the end, she's job. like, fuck it. I'm just, I know. matter. Yeah. I'll just kill this guy if I need to. Yeah. I love how, like, he sees that and then sees him dead and is still, like, she's, okay. like, she's, like, cool. <laughs> yeah. All right. Hossein is. 
going through withdrawal. All right. And so he goes on a walk with Ati, the prostitute, and begs her to talk to him since he's been a loyal and frequent customer, but she brushes him off because he has no money. He sees the girl watching from afar smoking, and as he tries to walk away, she perfectly matches his pace and his movements until he runs off. That was funny when he runs off. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he, he's like, oh, it's really I actually, cute. I, I like this as a follow up to the scene with Saeed yeah. that we just saw. Because it's definitely another instance of her being kind of like a predator. Like, it's not necessarily mm-hmm. involving, like, active hunting. Yeah. She's, like, trolling him. Right, but it's like her mere presence is threatening. So mm-hmm. I saw that as, like, a conceptual shift from mm-hmm. her presence. Or I guess if, if you want to generalize and broaden it, women's yeah. presence at night being a risk to themselves. And that's a yeah. shift to their presence being a threat in this instance. It reminds me of, like, I don't know if you've ever, like been walking home alone at night and like across the street like you see somebody that's like also matching your pace like how it like flips that on its head yeah i appreciated that yeah it's also an interesting interplay of what we talked about with gaze earlier Mm -hmm. because he's actively pursuing ati and she is not looking at him and he's perfectly comfortable talking to her and bothering the fuck out of her Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. he's harassing her yeah yeah and then the minute this woman like looks at him directly and challenges him he freaks out and leaves mm-hmm. because like, you know, he is awful. <laughs> yeah. I love it. I've seen this in a couple of films, including this one where the woman just looks back and that act of just mm-hmm. looking back is threatening to mm-hmm. the man. Yeah. Another great instance of that is in promising young woman. There's like a scene at the beginning where uh, the main character Cassie is walking down the street and there are some men on the other side who catcall her and she just stops, mm-hmm. turns to look at them and just stares at them. And they're like, oh, well, it's no fun anymore if you're going to just look back, yeah. which I appreciated. It's yeah. like the advice you see. It's not even advice. It's like when people tell you if guys are saying sexually explicit things to you and you go, wait, I don't understand why that's funny. Explain it, how they stop. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Going back to the discussion we had earlier on masculinity, because Hossein is shown as a man who is not not deficient in masculinity, but like is struggling with having self control, mm-hmm. which is kind He's of also mourning his dead wife. I don't know if that's applicable. Yeah, I, I wasn't sure how recently that happened, or it's not clear. Even then, let's not like really. That's not really dependent no. on like what I'm saying. No, no, I just was yeah. adding that for context. Oh, yeah, no, that's totally, totally, like, a valid, like, he he's going through it, like, he's mm-hmm. not okay. But because he lacks, like, that control, which is something that we would normally... Associate with. Yeah, associate with traditional masculinity. The fact that he cowers in the face of the power of her gaze, you know, makes mm-hmm. sense. Mm-hmm. Like, he's not going to react to it the way that Saeed does, because he is not the same as Saeed. He doesn't right. have that mm-hmm. ego. But yeah, he also... Course. He has like a different kind of ego wherein he expects interactions with women to be on his terms mm-hmm. and he will reject them if that's not the case. Mm-hmm. Yeah, both misogynistic, but yeah, yeah, just in different ways. Yeah. So after she scares Hossein, she then runs into the little boy and frightens him, asking if he is a good little boy. And he answers yes repeatedly, but she insists that he is lying and bears her fangs at him and tries to scare him straight by threatening to take his eyes unless he is a good boy. She then takes a skateboard and goes off. This is my favorite scene of the film. I love really? it. I know that the scene with Arash and the girl later is, is That's my favorite. iconic, but this is my favorite scene because one, 
it's just it's fucking scary like i Mm -hmm. love how it just goes from it's kind of a drama up until this point in my mind and this is Mm -hmm. where it's like oh shit she can do some scary stuff Mm -hmm. i feel bad for the little boy because he's just like you know trying to live trying to get along and he wasn't really doing anything bad i don't think but i like that it's definitely giving us this understanding of her as the woman who watches kind of like Mm -hmm. the power of her omniscient eye so yeah, when she's asking him, I love the line where she says, till the end of your life, I'll watch you. Mm-hmm, and that yeah. really hits home to me, one of the major themes of the film. And I, so this is going to get a little bit theoretical, but I won't take it too far. <laughs> I noted that I think she is displaying what would be called a panoptic gaze. So panoptic is referring to the panopticon, which is this this theoretical term popularized by a critical theorist named Michel Foucault. But basically it's the idea, the panopticon was this idea of like, they talked about it in terms of like in a prison, you would have this central kind of like watchtower and the cells would be surrounding it and like a circle. So the idea behind it was that the prisoners could not tell when they were being watched, but they could be watched at any moment. The big brother effect. Yeah. So they kind of learned to modify or monitor their own behavior because they never knew when they would be watched and potentially punished for their actions. Mm -hmm. So I kind of see that in play in this movie here, because especially as the young boy, he, he has no idea really who she is. I don't think. And he's just terrified that she's going to be watching him his entire life and that he doesn't know what she can do to him as a result. So that's just Mm -hmm. another way that I think she's securing her power in her gaze. Mm Mm-hmm. What I like about that scene, too, is, A, it's a very morally gray scene on her part. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, mm-hmm. part of it is, like, are you having fun terrorizing that child? Yeah. Because, like, oh, if so, absolutely fucking mood. Yeah. But secondly, like, there is, like, a morality in play there. because She's asking him to be good. She's functioning as, like, a, like, a pseudo, like, Santa Claus. Yeah, she's like a boogeyman. She's like a mythological figure that they yeah. we tell children about in order to keep them in line. You she's know what a I mean? vamp Santa. That's what I thought of. Yeah, and like I think that's really interesting that she's positing mm-hmm. herself in that kind of way. Yeah, because at the end of the day, like those tales that we tell children are like morality tales. You know, like they're yeah put in place yeah. in order to have them exercise good behavior. And I think that by aligning herself as that sort of figure to this child we're seeing that there is somewhere within what's happening with her, like some sort of moral code. And I think that that is brought about again later when she says inadvertently, like she doesn't actually explicitly say this, but like states regret for like the stuff that she's done. Cause she obviously feels bad about it. You know, it's kind of like she's scaring the shit out of him in order to, in her mind, save him in a way to prevent him from that fate. Yeah. Because like, according to her later, like she's done bad things. Like she's not deserving of something good because she's done bad things and she's Mm -hmm. bad. I think it's also interesting in this scene that she steps into like a motherly role and talking about like traditional masculinity and femininity and how she takes it upon herself to try to like teach him to be a good person or rather like scare him into being a good person. Because, you know, when you think about like families, it's always like the mom that is charged with that. I honestly, I think that's an interesting point, but I am going to disagree with you in the sense that she's being maternal because I think that her, she's actively threatening this kid, which I think kind of does the opposite of that in a way. She's functioning like you're suggesting, like as sort of like a teaching guiding force, but she's doing it in like a way that is completely opposite to like a maternal impulse. 
to like yeah, care Yeah, I would give. say the function is perhaps maternal, but the execution or like the performance or whatever you want to call it, the means is not. Yeah, which which is fascinating. Like her character is one thing and another thing at the same time. You know, like she's she is both woman and monster. You know what I mean? Like she is like these two things at the same time. Mm-hmm. Both interesting points. Yeah. So Arash cobbles together a costume for the costume party that Shada was talking about on the phone. And he dresses up like Dracula. And then he deals drugs to his former employer who gives him an ecstasy pill. He has quite a trip in the club with Shada and even tries to kiss her, but she pushes him off. He eventually leaves and gets himself lost until the girl is skateboarding by and sees him. We gotta talk about the party. <laughs> well, also, she totally stole that skateboard and it was funny. I know. Um, not to not to advise stealing from children. But I think it's also important to just note that he didn't take the drugs. Willingly. Yeah, like she gave the pill to him and was basically mm-hmm. like, here, take this to have a good time. Yeah, she says like, the pill needs you. Yeah. To, like, yeah, it was weird. <laughs> What do you guys make of the scene between Shada and Arash? I think it's interesting that it's the first time she really acknowledges him as like a human being because he has something that she wants and he's in a position now where he has some power because he's he's a local drug dealer now. He's going from someone who had minimal resources to someone who now has the resources yeah. that she wants. Mm-hmm. But really, I mean, in general, to be honest, I didn't really think much of the scene. I just no. took it as somewhat of a filler yeah. scene. Outside of like what I had mentioned earlier about how like so many laws are being broken in this scene, I didn't think much more about it. Okay, because I like made, I made like a little, we talked about dancing already, but I made like a little list of all the scenes where there is dancing involved. Mm-hmm. And I think that this scene in particular is one of the instances where dancing is like associated almost directly with sensuality or sexuality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that the entire scene was just really interesting. Like he's like watching her dance and like they're dancing together kind of. And she has been kind of flirting with him for most of the movie. And he goes to kiss her and she's like, what are you doing? And it, I thought that was just like really interesting. Mm-hmm. I guess like I was just kind of like, what do you guys think of that interaction? Because I was just curious as to why you think that's in there. Like, why do you think that he goes to kiss her and then she says no? Like, what do you, what do you make of that? I think in, in some ways it could be to like demonstrate that he's not traditionally masculine because she doesn't find him that attractive. You know, he's trying really hard to be attractive to women, you know, like the James Dean thing, the car Now he's dealing drugs and like, he's trying, he's trying to be, what is the word? Desirable? Desirable. He's trying to be desirable, but like in the moment, it just kind of like falls apart for him and he's very vulnerable and very soft. Yeah, I don't- she's not into that. Yeah. While I get that idea that he is trying to like put on, putting on airs, um, (laughs) I, I just like- (laughs) I don't think that we see a lot from his character that is, like, very attention-seeking. I think that the more I'm thinking about the scene, just, like, now, I'm kind of taking it as maybe he, like, actually felt a connection with her in that moment because he doesn't really seem to have a lot of closeness with anybody in the film, period, so much so that he starts latching onto this vampire girl. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) 
So I think that that just kind of like lends itself to that sort of outsider quality where he feels like disconnected. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I guess, I don't know, for me, when it comes to those two characters, I always go back to class. Yeah. To me, I kind of read that as now that I'm thinking about it, especially her rejecting the kiss mm-hmm. is kind of like a, well, you're, you know, you're beneath me. You're still someone who would work for me, not be with me. Yeah. So it, I see it as a, a difference in status. Yeah. And her just being like, this can't be like, we can't be together. What I also like about that is the minute that he's rejected, the like sort of sensuality of the scene goes away and mm-hmm. you see her dancing and it's not like, she's more just like kind of swaying <laughs> there. Like, rubbing herself in a way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then like the guy puts the Dracula teeth in his mouth mm-hmm. and it yeah. all just becomes like so much more real than it yeah. was before. And yeah. I, I love that. I love the way that the film plays with perception to kind of really highlight the sort of like ephemeral feeling of the moment and like mm-hmm. how fast it can go away, you mm-hmm. know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And how, how much he misreads what's going on. So the girl stops and Arash jokes that his name is Dracula and she follows him until he turns around and confesses that he hasn't ever been high And he's lost and confused. And realizing how cold she is, he wraps her up in his costume cloak to try to warm her up and then tries to sit on the ground with her. I, I fully. It's so cute. I just love this scene. (laughs) I'm thinking about it right now. And I am like, there are tears in my eyes. He is just so precious. Oh, yeah. And she is so precious too, because she's so just like, she's so put off by all of it. (laughs) And then like, he gets on the ground and she's just like, you can't sit here. (laughs) Yeah, I think part of like her shock in this scene, though, comes from the fact that he witnessed her after the murder. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so he's a potential loose end for her. Mm -hmm. And then he instead of being like a target, like you're going to be a bad dude. He's just like so vulnerable with her. Like, Mm -hmm. yeah, and even says, I'm not going to hurt you. Don't worry. Yeah. And I think that really shocks her. Yeah. Which explains why the the rest of the film kind of plays out the way that it does. Yeah. Yeah. That they're just two lonely souls. Yeah, for sure. They can be lonely together. Yeah. And then Mm -hmm. she, she wheels him back to her place. (laughs) Yeah. You can see on his face. He's like, he's, yeah, he feels like he's like going really fast or something. I know. I like, it's uh, cute. I fully, I love this movie so much. Like, (laughs) we got to get to the next scene so you can explode. Uh. Mm-hmm. This next scene is my favorite. Natalie scene. texted us to say that this next scene is the reason she is alive, <laughs> <laughs> which I thought was hilarious. Okay, so in her room, she puts on a record, and it's the song Death, Death by the White Lies. <laughs> fucking Bob. Yeah. And he stares mesmerized at her disco ball, and he gives it a spin before he walks up behind the girl, and they stand there for what feels like the longest time it is one singular take of him standing there and then slowly walking up behind her and what i love okay i'm sorry what i love (laughs) about the way this scene is staged is a i love her haircut and i love the shirt she's wearing and i love that in this scene all you see is like her exposed neck Mm -hmm. because like vampire and He's walking, he's in the fucking Dracula cape, and he's looking at her in, like, a hungry kind of way. And the music is, like, so loud, and the disco ball is happening, and, like, he's just walking so slowly, and it's all one take. And you're just, like, watching it. Just, like, watching it happen. First of all, she's the only one 
who starts off in the frame, just mm-hmm. right side mm-hmm. of the frame. And then he's out of frame and he slowly comes in, which is a nice effect. I know. And what I love about that scene too is that there's so much happening at play right now. Cause like on screen, it looks like she's in danger. But in reality, we know that she's the one who is the dangerous one and mm-hmm. she can like feel him coming. And it's just like, it's just like so much. And then he walks, he walks up behind her, right? He walks up behind her. And then she turns around and she turns around so slowly and the music is still like bopping and it's like starting to hit like a crescendo because the song the song builds and she turns around right and then she reaches up and like grabs him by like the back of the head and like pulls his head back and it's so fucking hot and (laughs) she like exposes his neck and it's like so tense they're so close it's very vulnerable and then like you think she's gonna go for his neck and like bite him because vampire but in reality she like looks at him for a second and then she puts her head down on his chest and then the music starts to fade out as she's listening to his heartbeat. You can hear the heartbeat, yeah. It's just like he's so vulnerable in that moment. And then like when she has her head on his chest, he like puts his head down. And I'm just like, I just, this, oh my god. This scene, <laughs> it just like makes me feel so much. Like, I- <laughs> So what do you think it's saying? Because I was kind of seeing like, maybe it's kind of saying something about lust how she's she has this bloodlust and she's like you said because vampire she has that desire and that longing to to drink his blood but then desire and longing in a different sense to have him as a companion and to not feel so lonely anymore and to have kind of that kindred spirit so i i don't know like i don't know how exactly how to read that scene i was wondering how you two did one of the things that I thought was really interesting about the scene, I mean, other than just how fraught it is and the way that it builds and how it's just like a perfectly executed scene and it's my favorite of the whole film, is that he's the first person and the only person that gets to see inside her domain. Mm-hmm. And like mm-hmm. her whole apartment, like she goes down into her apartment and it kind of looks like a crypt or like a tomb from the outside, which is really cool. But like, it's the first time that we see her in her room where she isn't like free to be herself and you know like before we would see her like dancing to these records because she loves music and now she seems she's playing that part of like being demure or like submissive yeah and I just I think the interaction is really interesting and I actually didn't think necessarily that she was contemplating she was gonna kill him still I thought it was like just trying to like see what he was gonna do Like, is he gonna, like, make a move on me? Is he gonna, like, be into the music? She's trying to, like, size up how they're gonna react to each other. Yeah, I see that. I also kind of felt like, it kind of made me think, like, when you play a song that you really love for someone, maybe it's someone Mm -hmm. you're romantically interested in, maybe it's just someone you want to be friends with, but it's kind of like, I don't know how connected she was to that song, but I related to, like introducing someone to a song that you really really love and seeing how they mm-hmm. react and maybe yeah. that influencing how you think of them yeah. in the future and like western music is not really promoted that much in iran either so like there's a lot of risks that she's taking in this film mm-hmm. in this one scene okay to answer your question laura i definitely think that lust has a huge part in that scene the thing that I like about this scene so much is that it is so incredibly intimate mm-hmm. without actually being explicitly sexual. Yeah, it's yeah. the sharing of space. Like, if this were a different kind of movie, like, the two of them would have went back to that apartment and they would have had sex. Mm-hmm. But it's not that kind of movie. And the way that these two are interacting is not what you would normally expect. 
and it's so much more intense and it's so much more i guess intimate uh and vulnerable than what i think either of them are really expecting in the scene that's why they click so fast that's why they end up running away together at the end of the movie it reminds me of like a jane austen novel like in *Pride and prejudice <laughs> when yeah. they touch and then he does the fist like mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. y'all yeah. know what i mean um yeah. like how like something so incredibly small can mean like so much because of the context of the situation and because both of them are just so lonely and so mm-hmm. on the outside looking in like this moment of just intimacy is just so striking and like vibrant in the context of the film and i just oh my god the fact that it's all shot in like that one take builds that anticipation in a way that is mm-hmm. just like insane and i think it just really makes like that lasting impact like you feel when that scene ends something just happened between the two of them and it feels like something has changed that's why i was trying to think more about it because i think that that change happens when she goes from his neck to his heart mm-hmm. so i was thinking you know maybe the neck is like i said supposed to kind of symbolize the thing that she desires on a very like a fundamental level in order to level yeah yeah kind of like this is what she needs to live but then switching to his heart is like this is what she feels like she needs on a more emotional level Yeah, like maslow's pyramid hierarchy of needs that's what i was trying to think of yes thank you but like also his heart symbolizes life so it's like she could take his life or she could choose to live Mm -hmm. her life with him I think one of the other things that I really like about this movie in particular and the scene and also the way the rest of the movie pans out is I I think that the basic thematic concept of female desire yes, is like and wanting. Yes. One of like the themes that I think is always the most fascinating. I think if you were to like make a list of all of the media I enjoy, you would see there's one predominant thing and it's like a lot of the things that I like are about women wanting things. Mm-hmm. And what I love about that scene and especially when you contextualize it with the conversation she has with Auntie later is yeah. that she's making the conscious decision to like allow herself to want something to like yes. want that intimacy and yes. it just like blows my mind with how like intense it is in that moment mm-hmm. i just i have like such a reaction to it because like yeah. i just think that it is so so significant because i think that as women um (laughs) we are like conditioned by society to be told that like wanting things is not really something we're supposed to do Mm -hmm. and we so often fall into situations where we have to deny ourselves the things that we want and so like you get into a place where you're like i don't even know what i want anymore because i'm told that i can't have anything and we see that happen in that conversation that they have later where they're both basically saying that like you know i don't really know what i want anymore because i just can't have anything Mm -hmm. that i've wanted in the past and like there's this moment where she's just like allowing herself that vulnerability of desiring something Mm -hmm. and i just think that that is so beautiful yeah so anyway (laughs) next is the dancing (laughs) yeah let's continue yeah uh, so the film suddenly cuts to a scene where rockabilly a gay man in drag dances with the balloon that he got from the costume party the night before also beautiful (laughs) i don't know why that scene is in there it's cool but i do not know why it's in there the director is a huge david lynch fan and i read like she said somewhere that it's just like a nod to the dancing crazy people in those films (laughs) i definitely well there you go i think that within the context of the narrative it serves as a 
emotional palate cleanser from the moment before yeah, it. I get yeah. that. It's kind of like a transition yeah. narratively. It's almost like an intermission scene too, where it's mm-hmm. like passing from like act one to act two. Time yeah. to wipe your tears because we're we're moving on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I, I did see she said if like this film is not trying to say anything like crazy about women wearing jobs or like chubbed wars or anything. If anything in this film was going to make a political statement, it was going to be this scene because he's gay and he's in drag. And like Natalie had mentioned earlier, those are just like not okay things mm-hmm, in yeah. that society. Yeah. I do really like that scene. I love the like Western outfit that yeah. he has on. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm like, what are these Orville Peck vibes? Like, <laughs> <laughs> I also love the way that it's shot. Like it's such a high contrast scene. Yeah. And I like, I, literally I could just like wax poetic about how beautifully shot everything in this movie is. But I think that that's a really good example of one of the things I really like about cinematography in this film, which is the film's use of negative space. Mm-hmm. I really think that it lends itself to that sort of like panopticon effect that Laura was mentioning. And it also really allows for us to see how empty Bad City is. Yeah. So desolate. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. it, it really adds yeah. to that sense of loneliness and like isolation mm-hmm. because you're seeing mm-hmm. so much emptiness. Yeah, and, and it really feeds into, like, the Western genre. Mm-hmm. And, like, how, again, like, this film is, like, the first Iranian vampire Western. Yeah. And so, like, that's just kind of, like, a hallmark of that genre. For sure. So, Ati keys Arash's car, believing it's Saeed's, and of course it's not. Yeah. But, like, fair, though. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then she realizes that she's being followed by the girl. And the girl offers the jewelry that she took from the pimp that was the money that was owed to her. And Ati asks why the girl is following her, and the girl responds that she's just been watching her at night, and Ati doesn't know what she wants anymore and is sad. And wanting things to change is for rich people and idiots, according to her. Queen. (laughs) (laughs) And then as she goes home, the girl finds a homeless man and feeds on him before finding a note to meet Arash at the power plant. Yeah, I've already spoken enough about that scene between mm-hmm. Ati and the girl. But I do think that it is one of the most important thematic scenes of the film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would agree. Did the scene where she kills the homeless man seem kind of, I don't want to say out of place, but I'm trying to think about how it fits into the rest of the story. Like, is it just a scene of showing this is what she needs to do to survive? So sometimes she picks on the mm-hmm. most vulnerable people in the city or... Or what? I fully thought that it was an explanation of what she was talking about for herself in that scene with Ati. Yeah. You know like, I, mean? I can't change myself, gotcha. so I'm just gonna, like, lean into these instincts and, yeah. like, what I need gotcha. to do. Yeah, like, we all have to do uh-huh. things we don't want to do in order to get yeah. what we need. Yeah, I did notice that that comes directly after Ati says, so what are you? And so it's a cut to that. Yeah. And it's like, well, she's a monster. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. When she arrives at the power plant... Arash offers her a hamburger, which she, of course, doesn't eat, which surprises him. And he tries to get to know her, asking her her name, the last song that she listened to, and says that he noticed her ears aren't pierced, but he gives her the earrings that he stole anyway. I fully expected this to be your favorite scene in the film, Laura. Really? Because (laughs) Because I thought you would just go off about the penetration. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say he pierces her virginal ears, but you know... (laughs) (laughs) That's about the same thing. Uh, No, I thought the scene was really cute. And I liked that he was showing, you know, a direct interest in her, Mm -hmm. her personal interests and her tastes. Yeah. And like, he's like, 
I've never met a person who doesn't love a hamburger before, yeah. which I think surprises him. But then he, like, invests so much time in her, which I think is just really cute. I like how she yeah. was just like, nope, I fucking hate this. I'm not going to eat this. <laughs> yeah. I love when he's like, I'm not going to do the other one. She's like, do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You can't just have one. Just come mm-hmm. on. <laughs> Obviously, like, this goes without saying, but the implications of a vampire letting someone else pierce them. Penetration. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It speaks to vulnerability. It speaks to them being on equal footing. It speaks to the respect they have for each other. Love Mm -hmm. all of it. Also really love, once again, I've already mentioned, I don't want to keep repeating myself, but um, uh, that part where she's like, I'm bad, and then tries Mm -hmm. to leave. And then he's like, I don't care. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah, I I love that he's like no matter what you've done, like, I'm gonna stick by you, like, everybody's done bad things. Mm-hmm. But, obviously, she's a vampire and doesn't believe him. Mm-hmm. But I love I love when he was like, hey, if a big storm comes from the mountains and wipes everything out tomorrow, would it matter? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or, like, would it matter what you did? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay. And it's also just <laughs> acknowledging that in Bad City, everyone has a history, and that yeah, the only thing you can do is move forward and kind yeah. of forge your own way. But I think that's, like, universally true. Like, yeah. obviously, like, Bad yeah. City has been through a lot, but, like, everybody's got a past. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just thinking that mm-hmm. they're definitely framing the setting as an integral yeah. part of the story. So it's kind yeah. of implied that if you live in Bad City that, you know. You've done bad things. Yeah. Not you that know. you're a bad person, though, but that yeah, the context is bad. That there are, like, good people and bad people in this city and everybody does bad things, but the reasons that you do them. Yeah. It's not inherent badness. Yeah. Yeah. Back at home, Arash's father is still going through a very nasty withdrawal, and now he believes that the cat is his dead wife reincarnated. This is sad, but it's also really funny. (laughs) Distressed, he breaks all the pictures and tries to chase the cat, and Arash scolds him and returns with the drugs his father so desperately wants and tells him to take them and get out of the house and take the cat with him. And his father does. He takes the money and the drugs and the cat, and he goes off to get high. And he goes to Ati's place to hire her and forces her to do heroin with him, despite her protest she doesn't want to. The girl suddenly appears in Ati's house and kills Arash's father as Ati watches. And the two women dispose of the body together by leaving him outside of a run-down building, staged to look like a drug overdose. And then Ati disturbed by the night's events, understandably, asked the girl to take the cat and get out of Dodge. The next morning, that small boy shows Arash the body of his dead father, and Arash is in shock and asks if the boy saw something. The boy insists that he didn't see anything so as not to betray the girl, despite seeing her place the body there. He's scared of her. He's scared of her. Mm-hmm. Arash packs up his things, particularly the briefcase of drugs and money, before he drives to the girl's house and tries to convince her to run away with him. As she seems to agree, his father's cat walks into the room and he realizes she probably had something to do with the death of his dad. Okay, I want to talk about this because I love the way that this goes through. He comes in and he's like, hey, I need you to run away with me. And she just doesn't answer. And then Mm -hmm. she turns around and just changes. (laughs) her clothes and he like looks away while she's Mm -hmm. changing and then just starts packing like she doesn't say a word yeah she just starts packing and like i love the way that that shot too with him sitting on the bed and the cat walks into focus and everything gets kind of weird yeah visually 
And then after that, he watches her push all the jewelry that she's stolen from all the people that Mm -hmm. she's killed into her little bag. And you can tell that things are just clicking into place. Yeah. You know? Mm -hmm. I love the way that that plays out because like you know exactly what he's thinking yeah you have the extreme close-ups on his eyes where he's Mm -hmm. looking back and forth and putting it all together in his mind yeah another instance of saying so much without saying anything Mm -hmm. it's just like really i think it's like a really compelling scene and she does not know that that was his dad right like there's no way for her to know that like he knows that she did it he basically knows that she did it but i'm i'm wondering does she know that who she just killed was his dad Based on the next scene, I think she does. Oh, okay. I was going to well, say In the no. context of the film, I was going to say that she probably doesn't. I think that she will know that he knows that something's up with her. Mm-hmm. But I don't, I don't think that she... At first, I, I thought know. she did know. Because she kind of looks at him almost defiantly. Like, are you sure you want mm-hmm. me to go with you? But yeah. then in the following scene, I'll explain why I think she does not know. I always thought that she didn't know it never even crossed my mind that she would but i don't know (laughs) yeah i thought that her hesitance was more like are you sure a because like you know that i'm not a good person Mm -hmm. and b because this is very fast so despite the revelation that she most likely definitely killed his dad the two get into his car and drive down the highway in absolute silence a ways until arash pulls off the road I love this end of the graduate style. Yes, that's you what see I was him driving, say. and he's like yeah. slowly like, "I'm in a situation that I do not want to be in right now. Yeah. <laughs> I have to make a choice." Yeah, yeah. We pull over and pace around. Yeah, he does. He gets out of the car and he paces around, seemingly conflicted about running away with the woman definitely responsible for his father's death. And after a pensive moment, it's very long. Arash gets back into the car, and they sit for another tense moment before he reaches into the glove box and pulls out a cassette tape. They look at each other, maybe a knowing glance, before they get back onto the highway and drive away. Romance. So two things. (laughs) Romance. So one, the thing that makes me think she doesn't know she killed his dad is that she does look somewhat, for an instant, she looks somewhat confused about why he's pacing around outside the car. Mm. So I kind of took that as she's like not sure what's going on or what he's obviously struggling with two i love how the cat is positioned between them right between them so Mm -hmm. in this scene i see the cat i think the cat is representing a possible divide between them but ultimately something that brings them together like it's the cat is like the knowledge Mm -hmm. arash's knowledge that she killed his dad but yeah he's gonna continue on with her anyway Mm -hmm. yeah but also at the same time Killing his dad gives him the freedom that he yeah. so desperately wants. Mm-hmm. So I think it, it is at the same time a divide between them, but also quite literally, like you said, what brings them together. I noticed the second time around when I watched it, his dad has a line toward the very beginning where he says, I should just die and leave you in peace, mm-hmm. which I thought was a nice little touch to the film. Yeah. Foreshadowing. Yeah, I think that like in a movie where there's such a strong theme of sometimes we have to do things that we don't want to do in order to find what we need. It kind of makes sense that him having to bear the loss of his father is what is going to afford him the like agency that he's been seeking this entire film. You know what I mean? 
he wouldn't even think of doing something like that prior to his dad dying but his dad dies and it is weirdly awful but it's like what he needs in order to move on it's like the same way that her murdering is like not something she wants to do but it's what she has to do in order to keep surviving Mm -hmm. it's not like a hundred percent on the same level obviously (laughs) but i do think that there is definitely this element of what does it mean to make the best out of like a bad situation in a sense i don't love that that is the way i said it but like do you Mm -hmm. understand what i'm kind of saying you know Mm -hmm. yeah yeah I think that when we watched this for Halloween a couple years ago, I posted mm-hmm. a picture of the three of them in the car on Instagram, and I was like, sometimes <laughs> sometimes the perfect relationship is a skateboarding vampire, her 1950s boyfriend, and their cat. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's fair. Yeah, it's a good... I did think of The Graduate as well at the end, so I'm glad you yeah. mentioned that. Yeah, I love that you thought of that, too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It just reminded me so much of it. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, shit. Like, oh, fuck. Like, yeah. <laughs> what? And I love that he just is like, you know what? Fuck it. We're doing this. Like, <laughs> that's the thing. I kind of saw, like, they're leaving Bad City. They're leaving their histories behind. And obviously, they're still going to be the people that they are. But they're going to be in a different setting. And it's kind of like, well, we're now going to not erase what we've done, but move on from it and see what mm-hmm. happens next. Yeah. I love it. So what do you think this movie is trying to say? Or is it trying to say anything? Because I walked away from this film feeling like the second and third time I have watched it. It's a lot of... I'm going to say this and this is going to get me in hot water. (laughs) Style over substance. It it is 100% (laughs) style over substance. And, you know, maybe that's intentional. Because I do think that it's making, like, comments about things. But it never seems to land on a particular position. I would disagree with that i think that it is really directly confronting social issues and addressing the way that our surroundings be it like poverty or patriarchal oppressions or gender norms how those construct our day-to-day and force us into situations you know what i mean i think the reason why bad city is such a character in this film is because Bad City itself represents the society that is sort of building these people into who they are. Like, Hussein wouldn't be, like, hooked on drugs necessarily if he wasn't in an impoverished area and dealing with the grief of his wife. Like, the situation that is surrounding the cause of the, quote-unquote, like, bad issues in Bad City. So it's kind of like crime is the cause and the consequence. Like, it's cyclical, kind of? In a sense, it's basically the very basic Marxist theory that, like, yeah, you know, know what you're saying, like the social, um, the social, yeah, context like produces society, societal context produces poverty and produces crime because people have to do what they fucking can to make ends meet. It's kind of like its own feedback loop. The movie is basically positing this question: is like, how do you? find agency and find like yourself in a situation where you're kind of trapped in a cage because you can't leave your situation Mm -hmm. yeah and i think that it definitely has a lot to say about gender roles i know that the filmmaker said that it's not about you know like it's not about like a feminist and a child or but like you can't Mm -hmm. watch this movie and say that there's not a comment about gender (laughs) in this movie like we're dissecting gender roles we're flipping them on their heads we're dissecting gays we're dissecting what 
it means to have like a universal assumption of gender norms and like how patriarchal gender norms feed into a lack of equality. Like I think that it's saying plenty. So I, here's actually what I got from it in general. It deals more with the concept of what the title says, a girl walking home alone at night. So I focused, well, I agree with what you just said, Natalie. I think that's all valid. I kind of took a different angle. I kind of saw this movie as like a depiction of what I termed nocturnal agency. So like we have the girl who's occupying this very liminal space of the streets of Bad City. So, Mm. you know, she's kind of owning them. She's the one who's stalking the streets. She's the one who is threat in that sense. But she's also occupying like this very temporal space between sunset and sunrise. Mm -hmm. So it's like she's occupying the physical space of the streets, but also the time itself of night. And in that sense, I kind of saw her as reclaiming her right to safely exist at night as a woman. So I saw the film as a narrative of her reclaiming those spaces and in that way asserting her agency. And it's particularly special because it's at night, which is culturally, at least, again, this is my Western perspective. But I would venture to say that it's somewhat universal and that women are more Mm -hmm. exposed to danger at night. Yeah. And therefore almost should not exist at night. Yeah, no, I I completely also buy that read. I think that makes complete sense. Mm -hmm. I think that the vampirism in general also like posits a really interesting facet into what we both just mentioned. The idea of repurposing woman as monster, A. And then also the idea of, like I mentioned from that quote from the director earlier, like how there are so many different facets of the vampire mythology that are prevalent within this film. So like lust, addiction. Otherness. Otherness. How all of those things are exhibited within bad city not necessarily always through the girl but just in general because like they are a part of the like mythos and the movie is kind of positing like hey like as a vampire she can't really help having these things because like that's who she is (laughs) Mm -hmm. and how do you take these negative things and try to make some good out of it Mm -hmm. you know yeah and what you realistically can change Mm -hmm. which is constrained by your social environment. Yeah. But I don't think the end is saying that you can change that by just leaving, but it's a start to change their environment. Yeah. I think that even without that whole like thematic read of the movie, I still think that it's like, it still has so much good in it. It's just like a, it's such a well-crafted film. Even if you do believe that the movie is style over substance, it's got like such fucking great ass style. You know what I mean? (laughs) Uh (laughs) Yeah. Well, I was going to say, I was going to point out, you know, I know this is already a very theoretically heavy episode, but I was going to point out that I think that the film is very postmodern. And by that, I mean, some of the prominent features of postmodern film are like what they call intertextuality. So drawing from different sources to create one piece of art. So Mm -hmm. we already talked about all of the different influences that seem to appear in this movie. And also the fact that while I think these characters were fairly developed, lots of times in postmodern films, characters are a little bit more hollow. They aren't as well developed. We don't know a lot about them. We don't know their inner thoughts. So while I don't think that's completely the case in this film, I, I think there's a little bit of that there. 
Well, there's definitely postmodern elements in this. Like there is without a doubt, like a pastiche of 1950s aesthetic in here. And there's a lot of intertextuality mm-hmm. that we've already touched on and that you basically just touched on. Like I, I 100% agree with that. I would totally consider this like a, a postmodern film. Yeah, absolutely. So that necessarily, I think, gives it a lot of style that is very particular, very mm-hmm. recognizable. But yeah, I enjoyed this discussion. This is definitely one of our more theoretically heavy episodes. Yes. But I wanted to bring in some material that really spoke to Iranian cinema a little bit more and gave us another way of looking at the film. Because like obviously, like Laura said at the top, like we are, we are at the mercy of what we know. Um, yeah. So... <laughs> I'm glad that we were able to have like a more nuanced discussion. And I like, I'm glad that we all like the movie. We like it to varying degrees, but I am glad that we all like really enjoyed it because this is a movie that means a lot to me. So I think that it's cool that we got to talk about something. And this is our first foreign film and it was our third black and white film. (laughs) I don't know how long we're going to keep doing like a black and white film every time, but Heidi really wants us to. So I will make sure it happens. Yeah, this Damn. is fully just like a, that is a, a fluke that I chose this black and white film. Um, <laughs> because normally I don't think I would, but you know, <laughs> here we are. And yeah, I'm like, I don't, I don't really have anything else to say. I'm just like, I just really like this movie. And I hope that everybody else really likes this movie. And I hope that if you've gotten to this part of the episode and you haven't watched this movie, that you would still do it. Because trust me, the visuals alone are worth it. I would definitely agree. Like, if you have never seen this film before... It is 100% worth your time. Yeah, it, it is. It is so stunning and it's, it's such beautiful. an experience. But it mm-hmm. is important to know what you're going into, like especially if, depending on how many different styles of films you've seen, yeah. like this is very much an art house film. So it's going to be, it's yeah. slow paced. As you've heard, there are some things that are a little confusing and we're just like, we don't know what that means, but it's okay. Yeah. Not everything has to mean something. Yeah, I would also add that this is the least like a horror film of all the films that we've covered. Yeah. So if yeah. you're like, I don't want to be scared. This is the yeah. movie for you. Exactly. This, is a, this yeah. is a romance film. Yeah. Yeah. It very much so is a romance with horror elements. Mm-hmm. But like I said, it does definitely play on genre conventions and it does have, it has something to say within the horror genre for sure. I think vampire films are interesting in that way. Like they do usually cross genres and I, as I'm sure you guys have noticed, listeners, I I prefer my horror to evoke more than one thing. Like I love a she multi-genre a moment. Woman. Yeah, I'm like all <laughs> about it. I'm like, bring she me the layers. comedy, bring me the romance, mm-hmm. bring me a third thing. What's a third thing? I don't know, like Samuel L. Jackson. I don't know. Like <laughs> <laughs> Willem Dafoe. Gaslight Gatekeep Girl Boss. Gaslight Gatekeep Girl Boss. <laughs> So yeah, should we talk about our next pick? Yeah, we're switching it up for the next time. Mm-hmm. Laura is actually going to do the next pick. Yes. So for my next pick, I have selected Annihilation, which wah, is wah, wah. a 2018 sci-fi horror film directed by Alex Garland. Probably he's most well known for Ex Machina. Is that what you would say? Yeah. Yeah. I, know, I think he also did a, a show called Debs. Which yeah, it's on Hulu. Yes. Hulu. Which I haven't seen. I've seen Ex Machina, but I haven't seen either. I love Ex Machina. <laughs> I actually picked this one because I didn't like it the first time I saw it. <laughs> so... I love this movie. <laughs> and I definitely am one for re-examining things that I had a negative reaction to at first. 
So I want to go back and I want to watch it again because I feel like it might have just been a mood that I was in, honestly, when I saw it. So I feel like I will view it more favorably a second time around. I think I need to give it another chance. The story's great. I don't remember why I had, well, actually, I do remember why I had a negative reaction to it. It was the ending. It's very cerebral, especially on the ending. But um, yeah. I love this movie, and I actually think this movie is kind of scary. So, yeah. That's only, I think there's only a couple parts of it. I'm mostly just glad we're finally getting our alien on. Woop woop. Yeah. It's time for some sci-fi. Yes. So yeah, I'm excited to kind of re-examine and reassess. Awesome. Yay. Very, very excited for Annihilation. Annihilation is a fun time. Well, I mean, I don't really know if that's true, but it is an interesting movie. <laughs> it's a time. It is it's a time. I don't know time. if I would say it's fun, but it is, it is, <laughs> it is good. <laughs> okay, so thank you so much for listening to this episode. Uh, like I said earlier, we do really appreciate the people who have been listening to us so far. Anybody who is new at this episode for the first time. Oh my god, hello. Um, <laughs> thank you so much for listening. We so so very much appreciate you please feel free to leave us a comment leave us a review we really really appreciate any feedback we could get because we're still in the little baby stages of the podcast and we would just love to keep developing content that you guys will enjoy um and also if you were to leave a rating or review on the podcatcher of your choice that'll also help us get our get our name out there and help out the podcast which would also be really awesome uh, you can also follow us on Instagram at Slashers Before Blondes Podcast. Yeah, so thank you so much for listening, and we will see you in two weeks with our episode on Annihilation. So stay spooky. <gasps> she said it. Oh, she said stay spooky. Stay spooky. Uh, end of podcast. <laughs> <laughs>